What messages have you received about prayer? How did you learn how to pray? Welcome to The Good Word. I'm Jody Washburn, host and study guide author for this 13-week series on the book of Psalms. Joining me in conversation are Tiago Ajais and Matilda Fry, both professors in the School of Theology. So how did, how did we learn how to pray? What messages stand out that we received, maybe early on or maybe throughout our lives, about prayer? Growing up um, as a child in with prayer, with prayer life, it's kind of ambiguous. It's both. It's this idea you learn the prayer, you memorize it, and then you say it, like before you eat at the table as a child or bedtime and so on. And then only later in life, uh, when you like think about what you actually say, what you do, it may it may change to a more personal, more intimate way of expression. Mm. Well, my, my father's a pastor, grandfather's a pastor, so I grew up in South America with a lot of prayer and prayer talk, prayer warriors, weeks of prayer, prayer meetings every Wednesday night. Um, and it was interesting that growing up I had a, a sort of a difficult relationship with the concept of prayer because you hear at one point that God knows our needs and even before we ask them. And then I, as a child, I remember not being able to endure these 10-minute prayers on my knees and in the winter of, of, of this cold church. So I just didn't understand. I, I think it was much later in life that it clicked to me. Um, reading a, a, an interesting story in the Gospels where Jesus goes into the temple and there's the whole situation there and he sees the mess and then he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And then I continued reading and, I, and I, he didn't start a week of prayer. He didn't ask everybody to kneel. He just started healing people. Mm-hmm. So I think as a I think it was by then I was in seminary in South America and I was thinking well there's there must be more to this thing there must be an action a placing in the world that lead so so that intrigued me I think that's the first time that that something hit me that hard about a concept that was always difficult for me um, and I think the second one that was meaningful is maybe later in life reading Simone Veil mm. um, in Gravity and Grace a book that somebody gave to me as a gift and in that book she writes that um, attention. Um, to its highest degree, is a form of prayer. So again, back to that being placed in the world, attentive to what is happening outside, to people and to things, and allowing that to become a part of of relationship with God and with His creatures. So I think those things were, were very helpful to me in my in my path. Number one, the Gospels, and two, Simone Veil talking about prayer as attention. Mm-hmm. Mary Oliver also talks about prayer as attention, mm-hmm. and every time I read it, it makes me stop. Yeah. I remember the first time that I spent time at a retreat center that was run by um, a group of Benedictine sisters, mm-hmm. and they invite you when you visit the retreat center to um, join them in chapel. And basically, the chapel service is reading aloud from the Psalms. Hmm. And one of the things that caught my attention was um, the pauses. Hmm. I had spent my whole life in church, often hearing scripture read aloud straight through with no pauses, and then one person sits down and another one stands up, and it goes on and on. And they would read maybe a, a short paragraph and then just be. And experiencing that created the same kind of moment for me as reading Mary Oliver, right? When she says prayer is paying attention, like like what mm-hmm. you're you're saying, that it causes me to pause and to be okay with the pause, not feel like pausing is somehow showing that I am not contributing to the community or to the to the world. So, thank you for bringing up that that example. 
I, I think growing up I had a sense that if I didn't pray just like other people were saying I should, that what I was doing didn't count as prayer. And it's been a lifelong journey, I think, of recognizing the broader views of prayer. Um, and I'm thinking of two two kind of silly examples, perhaps, but I have recently noticed that I naturally like to pray with my eyes open looking up. And I think for much of my life, I was taught that that was sacrilegious or disrespectful. And so the Psalms have been a welcoming space for me because you have these poems where these these poets say, I lift up my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other aspect that I find really interesting is I didn't, when I was small, run into the practice of singing prayers. So we did have memorized prayers, Matilda, like you were saying, that we would say at mealtimes or, or other places. So I did experience that practice of memorizing, which I really found meaningful. But it was later in life that I was introduced to prayers set to music. And, you know, the Psalms are a liturgy that most likely would have would have grown up out of the worshiping communi- communal life, maybe set to rhythms or to um, some sort of canting or put to melodies. And I find that really meaningful, that when I roll over in the morning, for instance, I sing a song that is a prayer. And so it is, it is interesting to think, what have we been taught about prayer? And I like, I like the way that each of you described how, as we go through life, our sense of what is prayer expands and creates even you know, a more and more spaciousness for a wide variety of experience. One of the things that I find really moving about Hebrew prayers, not all of them, but there are a number of examples of the switch where a prayer begins talking about God, so third, third person pronouns, and then it, it includes also talking to God, you make me lie down in green pastures, you restore my soul. Um, and when I, when I read that, it brings me to, like, when I read it and ask, what is accomplished? What is the function of having permission to talk about and to God? It, it strikes me that it provides a spaciousness, almost like what I would consider um, with my daughter, backseat conversations. Like, we can talk about certain things when we're both facing forward in the car that it would be more difficult to talk about if we started out looking straight at each other. So that kind of spaciousness. But I wondered if for either of you, if there's anything that that you see as being accomplished by this, it's sometimes directional, like sometimes it moves from third person to second person, but sometimes a prayer just goes back and forth between the two. What is accomplished by that combination? I wonder, um, I mean, um, people who have studied the Psalms, for example, Klaus Westermann, who gives us, uh, who shows all these technical elements that are part of the poetry in the Psalms, also discusses the Psalms, how, how they develop, where they come from. And it is a very, a very strong, the, the idea that the Psalms come out of communal experiences. Yes. And um, so these are not like always individualized 
prayers. These are um, speeches and prayers that come out of an experience that an entire community has gone through. And the community goes through the up and downs of, of life. And in the Psalms, we have mostly those events happening that are like at the top, either of joy or the most deeply sad and 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 chaotic things mm-hmm. that take place. And so the Psalms come out of that. So I'm wondering if this back and forth between speaking about God and then speaking you is kind of like a chorus that goes on between maybe in a community where the Psalm eventually comes into written form and then is chanted or spoken or sung uh, by different groups mm-hmm. so one speaks about the the about god and the event that has taken place and the other group is addressing god directly mm-hmm. personally with the you i mean we do that in church uh, worship services as yes. well and it is always an uplifting way to to hear that or, or be part of that. Yeah, to so involve. evidence mm-hmm. of community. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's beautiful. And these songs have been sung throughout the centuries, and, and, and they were in the, mouths of Je- in the mouth of Jesus and yes. so many others. But what I like about this, in, in my mind, it's um, maybe for our listeners, it's good to understand that precisely what we're talking about is one of the key features of Psalms altogether. Um, basically, every other book of the Bible, you'll find revelation. You'll find God addressing people, God showing up to speak to Adam and Eve or to Cain, or God calling Moses into work or speaking through the prophets, thus saith the Lord. The Psalms is the first huge break in the Bible where suddenly it's not God who's doing all the talking, it's actually humans who are addressing God. And, and, and throwing words up to God to describe, to grasp, to understand, to wrestle with so, yes, this communal aspect is huge because it highlights, again, this desire of humanity to come to terms with that with that being that has been addressing and speaking and promising. Um, so I think that's a beautiful way to, again, come to terms with what the Psalms is altogether, this human way of coming to God instead of waiting for God to speak as we have it in any other book. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that, obviously, Psalms is not revelation of God, but there's a different dynamic there than in the other biblical books. Yeah. And what is, I mean, one of the things that I think we often overlook, because I don't remember if it's Walter Brueggemann or Eugene Peterson who says we do psalmectomies. <laughs> so we like to chop just portions of a mm-hmm. psalm and recite them in our communal worship spaces and pretend the other portion isn't there. Yeah. Um, but but a huge percentage of the poems we find collected in the Psalms are really coming out of times of absolute crisis, mm-hmm. um, chaos, the world falling in on us, so to speak, in one way or another, whether that's individually or as a community. And so this this idea that naming all of that in the best language that we as humans can mm-hmm. find in that moment, the Psalms create a spaciousness for that. Yeah. So... I suppose I'm curious, how do you see that permission of lament poetry for naming all of these very difficult parts of human life and directing that naming to God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. What does that do for for humans? What does it offer us as a way of um, moving forward, of finding well-being in the face of very real complexity and crisis? Mm. 
Well, I mean, it makes me think immediately. I mean, I don't know about the crisis and the, the conflict. I think you're right in the sense of creating the space for that to be named as Christian women. I mentioned before, like the poetry gives us gives a name to things that that f- before were no thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, on the way to language, Heidegger talks about a, a poem right in the beginning of his whole thing on poetry and language that says, and he quotes the poem saying that in poetry, no thing may be. Mm. meaning it is that move of naming that which was unnamed or framing something in a way that was never expressed before. Um, But my mind goes immediately to Adam in the garden. I mean, it it seems that even in a perfect world, God had this desire for humanity to participate not only in the the fellowship or the enjoyment of what was created, but in Mm -hmm. the actual naming of things and actually participating in describing things that God did not describe or not do. So it seems that from then on, there's always been a space for or a responsibility of the human to continue participating in, in dialoguing with God in the sense of creating names and ways of expressing things. Now, this is perfect, perfect situation, perfect world in regards to chaos and grief and the different modes of Israel in history, I think that responsibility is still there. That opportunity is still there. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. We've come to the end of our time, even though this topic could go on and on. But thank you both, Matilda and Tiago, for your conversation. And of course, thanks to Kristen Byerly and Rick Basket, our program engineers. And thank you for tuning in. For The Good Word, I'm Jody Washburn. You've been listening to Good Word, a production of the School of Theology at Walla Walla University and KGTS-FM. To order a copy of today's broadcast, you can call 509-527-2194. Thanks for listening, and we'll be here next week at this time with Good Word.